You are listening to Church at the Oaks podcast, where we exist to send disciple makers of Jesus by being disciple makers of Jesus. For more information about our church, such as services, upcoming events, or how to join a group, please visit us at churchattheoaks.com. For the opportunity to get up here and to preach your word today, Lord. Lord, I thank you just to be part of a church that would allow me to do this. But Lord, most of all, I pray that whatever I say today, Lord, if, if something comes out of my mouth that is not true and not beneficial to your people, Lord, I pray that you would shield it from their ears. I pray that you would, you, you would give them, Lord, only what's beneficial and glorifies you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this passage starts off kind of interesting. It's almost like an interview. The people who encounter John the Baptist, the one who's been preparing the way of the Lord, as Max told us about last week, he's preaching repentance, and they're asking him some questions. They're trying to figure out if he's the one, if he's going to be their Savior, because they've been awaiting this promise of a Savior since the days of Moses. I think of Jeremiah 31, 31, where it says that the days are coming when the Lord will make a new covenant with his people. For 400 years, they've been waiting on this. They've been stuck between the Old Testament and the New Testament with nothing but silence from their God. And finally, this guy comes along, who seems like he might actually be the chosen one that, that, that would rescue them. For 400 years, they've been stuck in the silence, and finally someone comes along that seems like he might be the guy. And they ask him if he is. And it's no surprise that they thought he was. He was the first prophet since Malachi. He kind of came out of nowhere just like Moses did. He, was, he had dedicated himself to the Lord. He was eating bugs and honey and started dunking people, baptizing them out of nowhere. So they really think that he's the guy. But he's like, nope. I know you think it's me, but there's someone that's far greater than me coming. So John points out that he only baptizes with water, which is an external cleansing. We can trace this idea of baptism, this idea of cleansing with water back to the Old Testament, where it was used as an outward symbol for internal change. But what John is doing is contrasting his baptism with the baptism of Jesus, and he's pointing out that there's going to be some differences What John is pointing out is that every one of us has an internal problem that needs an internal solution. He's telling us that there's something deeper going on, and John's baptism wasn't going to cut it. So last summer, me and my boy Seaborn had this great idea. We were going to do like the manliest thing that we could ever think of. We decided to live out of my Subaru for three weeks. We drove to like 10 different states and camped a lot. It was great. But what we didn't think about was if we were going to be camping every night, we wouldn't exactly have the opportunity for for a shower. So we smelled really bad. We get like three days into it, and I'm like, man, like, I think we, this is getting pretty bad. Like, we, we need to clean off. So we start using like dude wipes to clean off. If you don't know what that is, it's like a Clorox wipe. And like, didn't really do that much. Cut like one layer of dirt off. And then come like day eight, and we smell like really bad. We're like driving in the car to like Oregon or something, and I look at him and I'm like, dude, like, we need a shower. So we stop and get truck stop showers, and it was great. We probably needed like two or three of them. But what was going on was that we had a real problem. We needed a permanent solution. We didn't need something that was going to halfway fix it. That's not a perfect analogy because it was an external problem. But in a lot of ways, that's the position that these Israelites were in. They had something real going on with them, and they needed a real solution for it. And it's the position that we're in today. There's something that's deeply wrong within us, and we can't fix that on our own. Church attendance isn't going to fix it. Money isn't going to fix it. Britain isn't going to fix it because his only job is to point to Jesus just like John the Baptist did. What we need is a savior. We need someone to show us the way to life. So in this little interaction between the Israelites and John the Baptist, we see that John's water baptism was only going to point forward to the coming Messiah 
And if John isn't the Messiah, then that's going to pose some questions for us. Like, who is the Messiah? What will he do? And what does that mean for us? Looking back at verse 16, Luke says, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I love where John says that he who is mightier than I is coming. All John is telling us is that the one who is coming would be much more powerful than him, but he also doesn't stop there. John tells us that he wasn't even worthy to untie the sandals of the one who is coming. Untying one's sandals was like the lowliest task possible. It was even below servants. Like I said, I'm an intern at the church, which I guess kind of makes Britain my boss. And there's a lot of things I do for Britain. A couple weeks ago, he told me to mop the church office, so I did, and it was disgusting. I don't think it had ever been mopped before. And then I'll like clean his dirty coffee mugs if you want. Sometimes they sit there for two weeks and they get really moldy, and he doesn't even know that I clean them for him. But the one thing that I wouldn't do is if he asked me to take his shoes off, take his dirty shoes off, there's no way I'm going to do that. Point proven, like, I mean, he can do that himself. No one feels so low that they're going to take off someone else's dirty shoes for them. But John says that he would even do this. What we can tell from the way that John talks about the Savior is that he's not talking about a regular guy. He's talking about a king. And if he's a king, then that changes the way that we relate to him and think about him. It means we've got to treat him like a king. It means that he gets our everything. We're either all in or all out. If we're serving a king, then there's no room for lukewarmness because he gets our everything. In order to really understand and appreciate the gravity of what's going on here, we've got to understand how the Israelites got to this point and how the kingship of Jesus fits into that. For the longest time, the people of Israel, they, wanted, they didn't have a king, but they wanted one to rule over them, just like all the other nations had. So the Lord gave them Saul. But we know that he failed miserably. He put his own priorities above God's. He thought he knew what was best for the people. This wasn't just a one-time thing because every other king after him failed too. Even the most noble and respected king, David, a man after God's own heart, he slept with Bathsheba. Solomon built altars to pagan gods, and Rehoboam even split the kingdom in half. So long story short, if you're looking to anyone or anything but Jesus, get ready to be disappointed. Sometimes that's a tough pill to swallow, but it's true. And I know it's true because I look at all the things in my life that I've trusted in, and they failed me. Relationships, grades, experiences, they all failed me. And the stuff that you've trusted in, maybe it's your career, your success, people, sometimes even your own family, they're nothing compared to the person of Jesus. So we see even the story of God's own chosen people, the Israelites, who wanted a king to rule over them. It points to failure after failure when it comes to trusting in the things of the world. Because we are not sufficient to rule over our own lives. When John the Baptist told these Israelites over 2,000 years ago, the thing that he was trying to get them to understand was that it would take someone far greater than himself, far greater than a regular dude, to bring them up out of the pit that they were in. They couldn't do it themselves, and no earthly king could do it for them. They needed the power of God himself to come down and rescue them from themselves. And the same age-old truth rings true for you and I today, because we will fail again and again and again. I failed time and again. Not only are we bound for failure, but so are all the little things that we try to turn into saviors. Leaders we follow, people that we trust, careers that seem to be going well. Maybe it's notability around campus, and the list goes on. We also have this tendency to trust external solutions for the internal problem. We think that if we do enough good things, if we go through the motions and gain enough knowledge, then it will make up for our sinful hearts. 
but it doesn't work like that. What we need is a real savior and a real solution. And thankfully for us, that king that came down over 2,000 years ago, the savior that they were waiting for since Moses first told of him, he's already come and he's coming again. I think of Isaiah chapter nine, verses six through seven and the reminder that it is. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's a glorious promise that we can rest in, that the King of Kings has finally come. The one who would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, he finally came and he's come to rescue us. So we know that this Messiah, he's not a regular guy. We know that he's a king. And Luke is continuing to provide us with certainty that Jesus is the guy. We've been talking about how the book of Luke was written to a real guy in a real place who's named Theophilus, and it was written to give him certainty of the things that have been made known to him. And we're going to step back and look at, the ver- at that latter half of verse 16 again, because the question still remains, what is he going to do? The text says that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So we mentioned already, John's baptism was symbolic pointing forward to Jesus. It was not an end-all, be-all. And the one way that Israelites would know with certainty who the Messiah was, was through what he would do. If he's a king, then part of his role is going to be establishing and expanding his kingdom. And John tells us that the primary way he would do this is by baptizing with the Spirit and fire. What that means is that Jesus would bring the Holy Spirit and give it to the people to dwell inside them. What John is trying to draw out here is that the external act of baptism by water wasn't going to fix the internal problem of sin. He's contrasting his own baptism again to show that Jesus' Jesus's baptism was transformative and his own baptism was not. Because the problem, the problem that needed fixing, sin, it was ingrained in the souls of the Israelites and it's still ingrained in us today. We see it in the beginning in the garden with Adam and, with Adam and Eve, when Eve first takes the bite of the apple and then Adam follows right after, and then Cain and Abel, when Cain kills Abel, and then it's passed down to the whole human race. I mean, look around us. You can see the brokenness. We know what's going on in Ukraine right now. We know that the brokenness is evident. There's terrible things happening, and it adds to the evidence that something's, something's wrong. We can look around us and clearly see that. Even God's chosen people, the Israelites, would continually rebel against him time and time again. That's why they begged the Lord to give them a king like Saul. They weren't satisfied with the kingship of the one true God, but they thought that they knew better. They were living under sin. They were living under a tyrant king, just like you and I were, and some of you still are. That's the story for everyone of us who knows Christ. If you're in this room and you're not a believer, I want you to know that not a single person in this room was born a Christian. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were all dead in our trespasses before we knew Christ. And last week, Max reminded us that even the Israelites had to be born again. We can't think that we're beyond the need of the mercy and grace of of God. That's what the Pharisees did in John chapter 8 when they told Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. They let their own self-righteousness get the best of them. It was the very thing that Luke warned us about just just a couple verses ago, last week in chapter three. He told them to not begin to say to themselves that we are offspring of Abraham because he didn't want them to think that just because they were born into the, the nation of Israel that that saved them because they needed a heart level change. Jesus's response was to tell these Pharisees that before Abraham was, I am. What that means for us So it doesn't matter if you were born into a Christian home. It doesn't matter if you think you've done all the right things to earn his favor. 
because we have to constantly remind ourselves that there's not a thing we can do to earn his favor. He died a worthy death on the cross for you and me. His sacrifice is already paid for your sins and there's nothing that you can do to earn that. By his blood, we're washed clean from the inside out. Say that again, because that deserves to be said again. The son of God took the punishment that we deserve to provide a permanent solution to the problem of sin. So that now, as the text says, the Holy Spirit might dwell inside us when we submit to his lordship and place our faith in him. So John says that we would be baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire. We gotta remember that what John is pointing out is we have, a, we have a problem that needs a solution. And he uses fire to demonstrate how the spirit would bring about that internal change. I think of Zechariah 13.9, where the Lord says that he would separate the sheep and put some of them into the fire and refine them as one refined silver, test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. See, we can have full confidence that the moment we put our faith in Jesus, he saves us, don't get me wrong, but he also gives us this promise to purify us through the working of his spirit in our lives, refining us and removing the impurities so that we can become more like Jesus. I think of a controlled burn. If you, don't know, if you don't know what that is, it's where landowners will come in and set fire to the forest to burn away the underbrush. And at first, that doesn't really make sense because typically forest and fire don't go together. But the, but the trees can't thrive. The weeds and the vines are choking the life out of them, and neither can we. So the weeds and the vines are taken away by the fire so that the trees can continue to flourish. That's the work of the Spirit in our lives that he comes to dwell in our hearts and he changes us from the inside out like a refining fire, propelling us forward in sanctification so that we can become more like Christ. So what we need to understand is that when we look at our lives, if we are truly saved, then we can clearly see the before and after of how the Spirit has so moved within us to leave behind the old way of life and take on the way of Christ. That doesn't mean that we'll be moved to perfection in this life. But what it does mean is that the state of our hearts will be different after we come to know Jesus. It means that we'll be set apart, which leads us right into the next point. Because the other thing that John promises Jesus would do is separate. This is a theme that we'll continue to see unfold as we're walking through the rest of the book of Luke. Looking back at verse 17, it says that his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Luke is using this illustration of the threshing floor, where after the harvest, the farmer would toss the grain into the air and the wind would take the wheat away from the chaff. The wheat would be preserved and stored and then the chaff would be burned. What Luke is telling us here is that Jesus is the dividing line. This king who has come to transform us from the inside out, he would be the one who separates. See, if Jesus is our Lord, there's gonna be fruit in our lives and that fruit is the evidence of salvation. And if we're not bearing that fruit, if there hasn't been a transformation in our hearts, then that means that we're the chaff that Jesus is talking about. And none of us wants to be on that side of things. It goes back to the whole reason that we need Jesus in the first place. There's something that's deeply wrong within us, and that's what Luke is continuing to draw out in this text. There's something that we can't fix on our own, but Jesus gave himself up for us so that we could have the cure to that. And apart from him, there are some real consequences that we have to face. Because on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved. And if we don't submit to him as a Lord, then we have no choice but to face that same judgment. But with Christ, there's a real promise. 
that when we bear fruit that is evident of our salvation, he would gather us into the harvest and make a way for us to dwell with him in paradise. But what does that fruit look like? So we answer this last question of what all this means for us. We're going to see a few things in John's own life that we can emulate. So I've got a few things for us to reflect on. Number one, are you telling others about him? Right here in the text, we've got an example of somebody who knew Christ and submitted to him as king. He was actually the first person to really recognize Jesus when he jumped in his mother's womb while she was with Mary. So it's clear that John the Baptist was somebody who was transformed and bore fruit for the kingdom. And right here in verse 18, Luke states, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. That's something that we don't get a pass on. If you've been coming to Oaks, you know that we read the Great Commission every single Sunday because we believe that we're a church who's called to to go to the people around us and to take the gospel boldly to those around us. And sharing this good news is part of bearing fruit. And there's no getting around that because it's part of the transformation. See, if we have been transformed by Jesus, then there will be a desire in our hearts to tell the gospel to those around us, just like John the Baptist did. And the second question, are you ready to stand firm in the face of opposition? So we're going to go back and look at verses 19 through 20 again. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. See, it feels kind of weird to have these verses thrown in here at the end, and it doesn't necessarily make sense at first, but here's what's going on. John the Baptist has been faithfully carrying out his ministry. He's been faithfully doing the thing that God called him to do, and he calls this other guy out for marrying his brother's wife, which is just not cool. What we see here is that John himself was so transformed by this King Jesus, he was so transformed by the gospel that he couldn't help but proclaim what was good and true, even when he knew that there would be consequences. What we see is that when we put our faith in Jesus, there's no guarantee that we won't face the same opposition. There's no guarantee that we won't be persecuted and face trials and hardships, but we know that it's worth it because of what Jesus did for us. And we can clearly see that, that, that John was so affected by the Spirit that he, he knew with certainty what was true. And there are countless other examples of believers who stood firm like John the Baptist did. One of the first that came to my mind was the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know who that is, Bonhoeffer was a German theologian during World War II. During the war, he was actually training pastors in an underground seminary before it was shut down. And after he left teaching, he went on to join the anti-Nazi efforts by rescuing Jews from persecution. Bonhoeffer was somebody who stood up for what was true. And one day in 1943, two men showed up and they carried him off to prison. Even while he was in prison, he was pastoring and preaching to his fellow prisoners. But after two years, his execution came. And a few years later, one of the witnesses to his execution made this remark. The prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdicts of court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one of the room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain, so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. And then he breathed his last. Rather than renouncing his faith, and escaping the punishment that was sure to come. He held on to it, and he knew with certainty. He stood firm. The only clear explanation as to why somebody would do that is that Bonhoeffer was so affected and transformed by the Spirit of God in his life that he walked through life with certainty of his faith, 
Just like we've been talking about, the book of Luke was written so that we would have certainty of the things that were made known to us. And we see that, that Bonhoeffer had that. He was so certain of what was true that he, he proclaimed it even in the face of sure death. So the question for us, and one of the truest tests of our faith, is are we so transformed by the work of the Spirit in our lives that we would stand firm in the face of opposition, even as John did? And the third question, if you don't really have an answer to those first two, then I want you to consider this. Do you know Jesus yourself? I know that some of you do. Some of you have known him for a long time. My encouragement for you is to rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that you serve a king who gave his life for you and cares for you, a king who came to transform you from the inside out. But I know too that some of you don't know this Jesus. You haven't yet come to know him and be, be transformed by him. My question for you is, do you really think that you can do this on your own? Because I know that I can't. Every single time I've tried to be the Lord of my own life, I failed. Like I said earlier, I had to walk through that sea of my own failures in order to realize the Lord was calling me to something better. That the Lord was calling me to transformation. Because every single time I tried to be the Lord of my own life, I failed. And I had to realize that it comes from a person. His name is Jesus. And if you're listening to this right now, and you feel the weight of that, if you feel the weight of your sin and your shortcomings, then I invite you to lay them down at the foot of the cross. I know there's some people here who would love to talk to you about that. Maybe you need to talk to a tribe leader or a huddle leader or the person that brought you to church today. Maybe you want to meet with Britton and Austin. I know that they would love to do that. I also know that the word says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that you will be saved. Maybe you need to do that this morning. It's my prayer today that the Spirit would move in your heart and bring you to that place of repentance where you recognize the kingship of Jesus, that he has come and he has laid his life down for you, that you might experience a change from the inside out. With that, Grant is going to go ahead and pray, go ahead and lead us out in another song, and I'm going to pray us out. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity just to be part of a church that would allow me to have the opportunity to do this. Lord, I thank you for a church that's multiplying leaders at every, at every level and training people up. Lord, I pray that as we go forth today, your word would inform the way that we, that, that we go about the rest of our day. Lord, I pray that these questions would sit in our hearts. And for those of us who don't know Jesus, Lord, I pray that, pray that it would affect the way that we think about our entire lives now, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would bring us to that place of repentance, bring us to the place where we realize that we need you, Lord. And for the believers in the room, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, encourage us with these truths that you have come and brought your Holy Spirit to dwell inside us and change us, Lord. Let us rest in that and recognize that we don't have to do it on our own, but we have the Spirit of God walking with us through all of it. In Jesus' name I pray.